the first readings from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under, under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and, and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let, the, let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty Father, Jesus said that our righteousness had to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, which is absolutely terrifying, because they were really good at being good, kind of. And yet, you saw through the fakeness, the hypocrisy, the phoniness, and you call us to the real thing, not the phony thing, not merely the outward, but the inward. You call us to, to be fulfilled in righteousness, the righteousness which only Christ can give and impart. And so we, we come to you uh, really clear that uh, that's not something we can manufacture. That's been tried before, and it doesn't work. But it is something we trust you to impart and to give. And so now I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, your reality would just barrel into our souls 
we, we, we don't ask for, don't ask you to be delicate. The matter is too big and the time is too short. We ask you to do whatever it takes to get us to real, that we may taste and see that you are good. So answer that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, will you please turn back over in your service sheets to page 9. Um, we're continuing our series in the Ten Commandments, which is part of a bigger series in the book of Exodus. Um, last week we looked at the first commandment, uh, don't have any other gods but God. Um, and this week we're looking at the second commandment. We're going to continue looking at each commandment week by week. And this week we're looking at uh, verses 4 to 6, which basically says, um, uh, run from idolatry, don't have idols. Don't make idols, don't serve idols, don't do idols. And um, well, we're going to talk about what an idol is in just a few minutes. But um, this gives us an opportunity to pick up a thorny question. And, uh, and it's this question. Um, why does the Bible think sin is a big deal? Uh, why do Christians think sin is a big deal? Um, you ever ask that question? Uh, my guess is that uh, for some of us who do not have a particularly religious background, you may, ne have, you, you may not have asked that question, um, especially not in those terms. Um, sin, the word sin, is a, is a super churchy word. Um, and it's usually only, I think, mainly used by um, religious people and like, and like chocolate <laughs> companies, right? Like Belgian chocolate truffles are sinfully delicious, um, which, as it happens, is true, um, but not in the way we're going to be talking about today. Um, so we, we usually don't talk about sin a great deal. However, if, if you are um, kind of, uh, I, I assume if you're here, you're, you're kind of interested in, in understanding what Christianity is all about. If that's true, then you have to understand sin because um, the Bible makes a big deal about it, and Christians make a big deal, deal about it. So why is sin a big deal? Why do Okay, but if you did grow up in a, in a uh, religious environment, if you grew up particularly in the church, then you've heard about sin all your life. All your life you've heard about sin. However, um, you can tell me later if you think that this is true. It seems like for a lot of people who grew up in church, there's a uh, very subtle, unspoken, but deeply held intuition that we're kind of making a mountain out of a molehill sometimes. Do you identify with that? Um, I, I mean, there's some sins that are obviously bad. Murder. We can all agree, right? Because, and, and part of the reason we can agree is that it's, it causes obvious immediate harm, like a lot of it, you know? Um, but what about sins, and there's lots of sins in the Bible, that don't create immediate obvious harm for other people? For instance, this one. Don't have idols. Um, you could go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, go through, the, uh, go through any number of parts of that wonderful uh, institution, and you will find lots of, of, of statues or works of art that at one time are exactly, were exactly the kind of uh, uh, idols that this text is going to warn so strenuously against, but when you look at them, it doesn't look like they're doing any harm. In fact, they're beautiful. So what's the problem? Why is sin such a big deal? Why is 
idolatry a big deal? Now, what we're going to do is we're going to try to answer the, the sin question by looking at this case study of idolatry. And what we saw last week is that all of Christian obedience is a call to intimacy with God. Um, the first commandment is basically trust God more than anything else, love him more than anything else because he loved you first, and that first commandment animates and gives life to all the rest of the commandments that follow it. That commandment explains all the rest of the commandments. Now, here's what I want to show you this week. Just like all commandments grow out of intimacy with God, all sin, including idolatry, is a betrayal of that intimacy with God. And I want to show you that by unpacking this idea of idolatry. And, and basically, the big point is this. Idolatry is betrayal. It's a betrayal first of God. It's a betrayal of others, and it's deeply a betrayal of ourselves. Let me show you. Uh, look at verse 4 on page 9. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, just stop there for a minute. And um, I think it's worthwhile just getting out of the way right out of the gate. This is not forbidding art. Um, how do I know that? Well, later on in the book of Exodus, um, uh, art is required. In fact, God explicitly gifts certain people with artistic ability in order to contribute to the building of something called a tabernacle that later becomes a temple. Um, there's uh, sculpture involved in the book of Exodus, and there is, uh, there is, there's visual art of a variety of types that are required by God in the book of Exodus later on. This is not er, forbidding art. It's forbidding the misuse of it. And you can think of it a little bit this way. You're, you're going to have to take your mind and try to get into the mind of an ancient Israelite. <clears throat> and, and hopefully this helps. Idols are all about access. So imagine that you're an ancient Israelite, and, and you, want, you want access. What do you want access to? Well, um, officially, you want access to God because you're a good religious person. But deeply, you want access to things like meaning and significance. You want access to things like financial prosperity. You want access to uh, health and healing. You want access to things that help you control your life. You want access to other things like, like pleasure and happiness and joy and long life. You want access to these things. And remember, you're a good Israelite. And so you know that at least theoretically, God, who brought you up out of the land of slavery and out of Egypt recently, God should have all that stuff. The problem is, how do you have access to him? Because you can't see him. It's a problem. So how do you get to him? Well... There's probably different ways that we can, might answer that question. But intuitively for them, one of the most intuitive ways that they could try to gain access to God is to look around at this world that they're in, this remarkable world. Isn't the world that we live in remarkable? It's beautiful. They look around the world that they live in and they find something that God has made, something in this world, that reminds them of aspects of God 
And then they take that thing, make an image of it, and they use it as a surrogate for God. So different cultures uh, kind of uh, identify different things in the created world that they, that they made surrogates for God. So um, famously in Greek culture, uh, there was, they looked at the human body and they, and they found the human body to be kind of uh, uh, incandescently beautiful. And so they took the human form and, uh, and, and they made sculptures and those sculptures became in some deep way surrogates for whatever God they were trying to represent. Now, the Israelites, however, didn't use the human body, not typically. The Israelites tend, they, they had a thing with bovines, cows, and bulls. I don't, you know. Um, seriously, just, just wait in the story of Exodus, the golden calf, right? And, bef you know, before we laugh, like, I don't know, try to get in their minds, um, bulls, make a lot of food, they make a lot of babies, what's not to like, right? Um, and so they represent things that are attractive for the people of Israel. And so they sculpt a bull, later on they do this in Exodus chapter 34, and several times uh, later in the history of the Old Testament, they make a bull, and they go to that golden bull, that sculpture, for the access that they want to gain. However, here's the problem. Uh, and, the, and the problem's kind of obvious. God's not a bull. And God cannot be fit in a bull. The God of the Bible, and particularly uniquely this God who has introduced himself to Israel by meeting them when they were slaves and they didn't know hardly anything of him and rescuing them when they weren't really expecting any hope of rescue, rescuing them out of slavery, leading them out of Egypt, overcoming the greatest superpower of their day and taking them out into the desert and then supplying them food every single day and water every single day in a place where there was no food and there was no water. This God who has introduced himself to Israel is now saying, hey, I don't fit into anything that is in the created order because I created everything that you see. I, an artist can create a beautiful work of art, but that art is not the artist. In fact, there's something about the work of art that the artist composes or produces that somehow the artist can often look at that piece of art and say, that that is something maybe kind of, it is distinct from me. It is beyond me sometimes. And God's created world is not God. And therefore, nothing in this created world can adequately become a surrogate for him. And therefore, God says to Israel here, hey, we're getting to know each other. And one of the things you're going to have to understand is that you can't paint me. You can't paint my portrait. Don't try because you will always distort me. Instead, says God to Israel, instead of painting my image, you're going to have to use your ears. Instead of using your eyes, you're going to have to use your ears. You're going to have to listen to my words. The Ten Commandments in Hebrew are not called Ten Commandments. They're called Ten Words. God says, listen to my words. Listen to the story of how I rescued you out of Egypt. You will see me, says God, with your ears before you ever see me with your eyes. Okay. That's the basic idea. But now slow down and watch this. 
idols, that big golden bowl. Idols can never adequately depict the God of the Bible. They always distort him. But on the other hand, this is important, idols always accurately portray us. Let me say that differently. Idols get an F for being an adequate portrait of God. But idols get an A++ as self-portraits. Here's what I mean. Think about the Israelite bull. That Israelite bull does not tell you who God is. Not at all. But that bull tells you precisely who Israel is, or better. That bull tells you precisely what Israel desires. That bull is the outward image of Israel's deepest desires. What do they want? I don't know. They want food. They want control. They want security. They want fertility. They want these things. And that's what the bull really means. It doesn't mean God. It means Israel and their desires. And when they bow down to the bull, what they're really doing is they are bowing down to their own desires. Which means that idolatry is never worship of God. Idolatry is always self-worship, camouflaged as worship of God. Now, what does that mean for you and me? Everything. Why do I say that? Because nobody in this room is tempted to bow down to a bull, right? I don't think so. I was at the Metropolitan Museum of Art the other day, and I didn't see one person bowing down to any of the statues. Um, none of us want to bow down to a bull, but all of us are drawn to idolatry. Why? Because idolatry is more than just fashioning something to look at. Idolatry is when we love anything in this created world, in the heavens, on the earth, under the earth, anything in this, when we love anything in this created world more than we love God. An idol is when we prefer anything in this created world more than we prefer God. An idol is when we trust anything in this created world more than we trust God. And all of us, if you know yourself at all, if I know myself at all, we all do this. Do we not? We look around at the world that we live in. And, and you must understand, part of idolatry, part of the reason idolatry works is because we live in a good world. Because God has made a world that's full of good things. And we look around in the world and we see good and compelling things. And without ever thinking about it, our hearts have a tendency to cling on to the good things that we see around us. Really good things. Things like family and relationships and career and money. Our hearts cling to them. Good gifts from God. But then our hearts cling to them in a way that is deeply destructive. Our hearts whisper in our ears and say something like this, if I only have this one thing, then I'll be all right and everything will be fine and I'll be happy. Or, conversely, if I lose this one thing, I will be destroyed forever. And so I cling to it. Now, do you recognize that in your, in your own heart? Sometimes it's easier to recognize it in somebody else's heart, which tells you something about you. But let me, let me ask you a couple questions. Uh, what do you love? What do you fear? What is it that you cannot live without? 
Let's go through a couple usual suspects. Approval. What kind of approval do you love? What kind of approval do you fear not having? And what kind of approval can you not even consider life without? Or control. Uh, what kind of control do you love to have? It feels good when you got that. What kind of control do you fear losing? What kind of control is it that you don't even want to go through life if you don't have it? What do you love? What do you fear? What is it that you cannot live without? Uh, success. What kind of success do you love? What kind of success do you fear? What kind of success is it that you cannot imagine life without? And you know, we can do relationships. What relationships do you desire, do you love? What kind of relationships do you fear you might never have? And what kind of relationships is it that if you lost it, you would be decimated forever? And the list can go on. That's your big golden bowl. It's a good thing. It's a good gift from God. It's not him. And it cannot bear the weight of your worship. And now we need to go back to the text, because do you see verse 5? Do you see a super uh, stressful word? It's jealous. You see that? God is a jealous God. Now, what in the world? Um, is God jealous? Isn't that beneath him? No, actually, it's not beneath him. Why is, it, why is jealousy not beneath God? Well, God is jealous because he loves you. There's a terrible, selfish, kind of narcissistic sort of jealousy. That's not what this is talking about. This is a type of jealousy that is simply love when the, your beloved is being lured away by something that will kill them. And our idolatry is a betrayal of the love and the intimacy for which we were made and for which we were redeemed by God. And therefore, when God sees Israel being lured away from that love for which they were made, that love which is the animating center of that first command that we saw last week. Do you remember that? We said that the Ten Commandments in all of the Christian life can never be reduced to mere rule-keeping. It includes rule-keeping, but it's deeper than rule-keeping. The animating center of the Christian life and of the Ten Commandments is an intimate relationship with God. That's the big game. And so when God sees us being lured away by idols, it provokes a jealousy in him. Jealousy is what love feels like when your beloved is being lured away. Of course God is jealous for us. And idolatry is a big deal because God loves us and refuses, uh, refuses to share us out. It's a betrayal against God. It is also, however, idolatry, a betrayal against everyone around us. Look back at the reading, verse 5. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And then more stress, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. What's going on there? Quite a lot. It sounds vindictive. Well, let me try to explain this. And there's going to be some remainder questions that I'm happy to talk afterwards about. But let, let me tell you a story, an imaginary story, and then we'll come back to the text. Um, uh, I want you to imagine a dad. And the dad is like, 
48 years old. Uh, if you're 48, I'm not talking about you. Um, and, and, and this dad is a great guy. Everybody thinks he's a great guy. He's a great guy. Um, great husband, great dad. However, secretly, he doesn't even know this. Secretly, he, his life is driven by two idols. Two idols. Which ones? Success at work and success at home. Those are the things that have driven him all his life. And those two idols, in one way, have produced fantastic results. Um, uh, great family, great career. From the outside, everybody looks at this person and says, that's the kind of guy I want to be when I'm 48. Except, one day, his son fails out of school. And he finds out that there's just been this, this train wreck in his son's life. And there's reason to think that that, 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 that train wreck is just going to impact the family profoundly. And, 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 and his dad comes home, and he sees his son there, and, his, and the dad just loses it. How dare you do this to our family? Do you know how much money I've put into your education? How many tutors? What, what is it? You have had everything. Why is he so angry? Some of us have this, Dad. Why is he so angry? He's angry because his idols are under threat. And that's what happens when your idols are under threat. His son has failed. Failure is not okay when your idol is success. And his family is under threat. And that's not okay when your idol is your family and your son has failed. And it's the problem is not, you must see this, the problem is not just the guy's got an anger problem. He doesn't need to count to 10. He's got an idol problem. And all through the years, this guy has worshipped success and he has worshipped his family. And everyone around him said, yep, that's good, man. That's the way to do it. I want to be like you. And it reinforced his idolatries. But behind closed doors, when no one else saw, he was racked with fear and he seethed with anger every time he felt that his idols were under threat. Idols are cruel taskmasters because they demand everything of you. They demand total sacrifice from you, but they will never love you back. And in the end, they will crush you. And the son, he knows all about this. He can't say it this way, but he knows all about it because the whole time that he was growing up, he felt his dad's fear and his dad's anger. And but he received it as shame. Shame. He hates himself. Why? Because he's lived all his life under the crushing weight of his father's idols. And then it gets worse because his father's idols have now entered into his son's heart and planted seeds for new idolatries. For his son, it may not be success, but it's approval. And it might not even be approval from his dad. Maybe he's given up on that. And he rolls his eyes and he slams the door and he walks out. He's given up on that approval, but he will spend all of his life pursuing the approval of someone else. And a new idolater is born. 
and thus it rolls down the generations. Father to son, mother to daughter, down generation after generation. And why am I telling you this story? We'll go back to the reading. Visiting the iniquities upon children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. See, the Bible teaches us, and you, we learn more about this in Romans chapter 1, but I don't have time to go there. If I cherish and prefer the, my idols more than I cherish and prefer God, the terrible risk is that God might well give me what I want. He might give me over to the idols I prefer to him. And if he does that, I will eventually be crushed under their weight forever. But it's not just that. My idols, my secret idols, will also end up crushing the people around me, particularly the people with whom I am closest relationally, very often families. Very often parents' family, parents' idolatries and sins replicate themselves in the hearts of their kids. Idolatry is a multi-generational scourge. And another way to say it is that the full impact of my secret idolatries may not come clear for two or three generations. And that's why when we say that idolatry is a big deal and sin is a big deal and the person comes back and says, why? I don't see any immediate harm. We stand back and we say, yeah, but give it time. And we don't have the time to wait to see the full flowering of its impact. We've got to stop it now. And it's a compounding tragedy. I plant my idols in my kids. And into whoever you're close to. How do we get out of that cycle? And of course, this story of brokenness is, it's, it's a theme that runs right through the whole Bible. It begins in Genesis chapter 3, go read it, and it ends at the very end of the Bible. And this is why sin's a big deal. It's more than rule-breaking. I beg you, Emmanuel, to internalize that. Sin is bigger than rule-keeping. It is rooted, all sin is rooted in idolatry. And it is a betrayal of God. It's a betrayal of others around us. And it will be a betrayal of us. And a betrayal that goes on forever if it is not stopped. And so how do we break that cycle? And do you know where the good news is found? We have a jealous God. Why is that good news? Because it's God's jealousy that moves him to chase us down and break that cycle. Look back at verses uh, 5 and 6. Do you notice that idolatry runs for four generations, three to fourth generation, something like that? But do you see following after that, God's steadfast love produces a cycle that goes on for thousands of generations. And the point is not that it ends at thousands. The point is that it doesn't end. There is a cycle that is stronger than the cycle of idolatry. And an idolatry runs down maybe for four generations, but there is a cycle of God's steadfast love that goes on. Once it begins, it goes on for thousands of generations. And I want to know, how do I get out of one cycle and into the other cycle? Are you interested in that? Well, I'm going to say, tell you anyway. Because it brings us to Jesus. 
Remember why we go to idols, we want access. Access to really, really good things like meaning and success and significance, and we want access to God, but how do we get that access? And the whole story of the Bible is about how God comes to us in order to give us an access that we cannot achieve. God comes to us and gives us himself. He wants to allure us into intimacy with him. And he does that in the book of Exodus by redeeming Israel out of Egypt, bringing, him, bringing them to himself at Mount Sinai, which is where we're at, and then he speaks. He speaks through his word. You cannot see God with your eyes until you first see God with your ears. By hearing his word and listening to his message, that's where it starts. But friends, God's jealousy in the scriptures goes further. Because the gospel of John tells us that not only does God speak his word, but God's word became flesh. That's who Jesus is. God's word is God himself in person, meeting us in the person of Jesus Christ. Think of it this way, we cannot make an adequate image of God, but God becomes his adequate, sufficient image for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the great scandalous claim of Christianity, that God has entered our world to make himself accessible. God has shown up in person in Jesus Christ, and he loves us with a holy kind of jealousy. But then God's jealousy goes further still. Because Jesus, God's perfect image, came to do battle. You look back at verses 5 and 6, the, an idolatry leads to a cycle of three or four generations, but if only there was somebody who didn't make an idol, and who loved God perfectly, and who preferred God above all, then that verse, verses 5 and 6, tells us that Whoever's attached to that one, who's ever in that family, then we will stand under generations and generations and thousands of generations defined by God's steadfast love. And that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the one human who never made an idol, who came to us and preferred God above everything in this created world. And now, when we are united to Jesus Christ by faith, we become the, one of the generations upon generations to the thousandth generation who stands under the steadfast love of God that only Jesus deserves and that we could never achieve, but we receive by grace alone. And that's how the cycle stops, Emmanuel. The cycle of idolatry stops when you look at Jesus Christ, God's true image, when you look at him and you see his love for you, when you see his sacrifice for you, when you see that he has taken upon himself all the penalty of our idolatries and all the betrayals that came crashing down upon him, and then he rose again, and he rose again and ascends to the Father's right hand, and he speaks to you, and he says, whoever will come to me, I will never shut them out, and whoever comes to me, I will bring them to my Father, and you will live under the white-hot affection of the Father's love forever, not because you are earned it, but because I give it free, free of charge. And when you see that, what you'll also discover is that Jesus is better than your best idol. He's better. Idols are never simply removed. You will never just kick the habit. The only way you ever get free of idols is when you see Jesus is so, so much better than them. 
And then your heart will let go and you will find yourself not so much clinging to Christ as being clung to by Christ. And then you will know freedom. And then you'll be able to go back maybe to your son and kneel down and look in his eyes and say, I have been an idolater all my life. But Jesus is better. And will you forgive me? And can I tell you about an idol that's so much better than success and so much better than approval? And it's not an idol at all. It's the image of the living God, Jesus Christ, holy and blessed. And that's when the cycle ends and we're free. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.